WTXPod.org. Welcome to West Texas Podcast, taking a bite of knowledge from West Texas to the rest of the world. With your hosts, Mike Duncan and Loro Leon Brees. All right, welcome to episode three of West Texas Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Mike Duncan, with me as always, Loro Leon Brees. Bringing you a bite of knowledge from the west of Texas to the world. Fantastic. Uh, episode three, we have a great guest with us. Um, we're, we're trying to stay in keeping with uh, the themes that we've had about artists and people here in El Paso and the border region that are, you know, producing art and working on things. Um, and so we have with us Aaron Coulihan, uh, author um, for such publications as Slate, Rolling Stone, L Magazine, and Salon.com. We're very happy to have her with us today. Uh, talk a little bit about her writing career and how she got into writing and, and just uh, any general topics that we come up with. We're a fledgling podcast, very, very fledgling. So, Erin, uh, thank you for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome, awesome. Um, let's I, uh, let's start off kind of by talking about um, how you got into, I, I named a couple of your publications earlier that you've uh, published for and written for, and we kind of want to start maybe from the beginning. So anybody that's looking to getting into writing and, and uh, for a living. Um, how'd you get into this uh, uh, field? Um, well, I graduated from UTEP with a bachelor's in English. I always really liked writing. I did a fellowship through the University of Texas in DC my last semester as an undergrad where I interned at a luxury lifestyle magazine called Washington Life. I loved that. I didn't really have any experience with journalism prior to that, but they were sending me to concerts, to different events, and I got to write something, you know, with a pulse rather than, you know, well, Shakespeare said this, or, you know, McCarthy did that. So I came back, thought that was really cool, and I helped co-found the City Magazine here in El Paso. Started getting more and more into music because all my friends were into it. And then I applied to grad school at Georgetown, um, got in, and so I moved over there to pursue a master's in journalism where I started interning at National Geographic, but on the side, I was writing for a local live music blog called DC Music Live. So basically what I did was hustle. Um, I was at Net Geo, you know, five days a week during the day and going to four or five shows a night and doing interviews with, you know, huge artists that were coming through DC, but because there wasn't that much live um, music coverage, I was getting, you know, these amazing experiences like I spent Valentine's Day backstage with Mumford and Sons and it was all you know really really crazy and surreal and just like me and my element so then um, in February of 2013 I went up to New York to see a friend's band play at the now closed Roseland Ballroom and I typically I'm usually the only girl backstage <laughs> I made friends with another girl who was taking photos and it turned out she was a photo editor at Rolling Stone she and I made friends, you know, kept in touch um, here and there. And then in May of that year, she told me that Rolling Stone kind of needed a writer, um, a news writer, and she had sent them some of my clips and asked, like, would you be interested in, you know, writing for us? Kind of like, what? Like, th this is too good to be true, you know? Right. But so I started doing that, and then from there, um, kind of catapulted me to different magazines, and here I am. 
Well, the the first question I have, uh, uh, and that's a very succinct, very like linear <laughs> history <laughs> of your, which we appreciate that because we're it's like a very short amount of time, and that's a lot of information. Absolutely, um, the steps from The Exorcist in Georgetown. That's my yeah. first question. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Have you seen them? Have you been to them? I have. One of um, our class assignments when I did that first experience in D.C., the fellowship, was we had to do a scavenger hunt around D.C., and we actually had to go to those steps, like climb them, take pictures and videos. Did you lay at the bottom of it and I pretend that you were Father Karras? I didn't know. On your last ride? <laughs> no, you didn't know? You didn't know no, the season? No, we're time crunch. Oh, that's true. <laughs> I had to win. Yeah, it's probably cold there, too, at the time. It was summer. It was oh, okay. muggy. It was, yeah. Okay, muggy, maybe. Well, that's, and, and so, like, in terms of, of writing, uh, and so would you say that music was your kind of way into getting to, to, to write about arts and, and things like that? Like, your first, your love of music kind of led into that? Absolutely. I had been, you know, my whole life such a big reader, and, you know, I respond so well, like, poetry and words. I was always interested in songwriting, in particular, like, silly but like the women that songs are written about kind of okay. like ooh I wonder what that girl's like you know like what's the story behind that so I love getting you know the backstories and learning about what inspires you know songs and the music that comes along and then once the song is written and played like what happens if the relationship ends like what's it like for these musicians to play these songs every night for the rest of their lives that's pretty that's pretty interesting yeah, so you felt like Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it put, uh, you know, like pushing the rock up the hill and mm -hmm. then coming back down. Yeah, and and so uh, and you feel like that was a very vastly different type of writing than when you were doing in college, like writing critical essays. And yeah, absolutely. And what I struggled with at first was kind of like not unlearning, but kind of developing my own style of writing because before you know it was so like newsy and stuff, and you read it, and it's like. Eh. You know, I want to feel like I was there, like, give me something interesting. So developing my voice was something I feel like really, really helped me and would help any young writer. Did you have models for you, like, as, like, people you aspired to write like, or...? Um, I grew up, like, devouring the personal essays in Elle. I just loved, you know, it, for me it was like reading a different character, like, oh my god, like, this happened, and then, you know, you get, like, Hunter S. Thompson and stuff, so I kind of wanted to be um, a combination of him and um, the first editor of Cosmo. <laughs> okay. And so, so you have a, a, a salt shaker full of cocaine. Oh, I mean, obviously, obviously. it's in my bag right now. Yes, <laughs> for the Hunter S. Thompson inspiration. <laughs> and then that, that first editor, he was a famous... She, yeah, she, Helen okay. Gurley uh, Brown. She is credited with giving Cosmo its purr. Okay. She was the one, I think you'll hear it, um, the expression like, bad girls go everywhere. Like that was the title of one of her books. Do you think personality plays a lot into, I mean, you said developing your voice as a writer. Does, if you're interviewing people and trying to get access to things and trying to engage somebody that, that might be like an artist who might be jaded or who might be, do you feel like your personality when you go into the interview is like a big deal? Oh, absolutely. I've seen interviews or like I've been present for some where it happens a lot in music journalism. I don't know why, maybe because people are so connected to it. Um, the interviewer will kind of project what they feel is the meaning of a song or a meaning of an album onto the artist. And when you approach someone saying like, hey man, this album that you worked on for two years of your life, it's all about this, this, and this, and then you're feeling this and that, you know, the artist responds like, hey man, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. You know, this is about death or life, like it's insulting. So for me, I always kind of try to go in with, you know, questions that they're not, 
you know, being asked all the times, like, what's the craziest thing that happened on tour? You know, they, you know, get pretty stock, bored with it. Yeah. questions. One of my favorite questions to ask them is because, you know, artists are so, like, jealous and competitive, um, is who makes you, like, jealous? Like, who do you hate? Like, because I know I have those writers where I read them, and I throw the book down, and I'm like, damn it, why didn't I think of something that beautiful, or why didn't I put two and two together like that? Mm -hmm. So it's definitely about being, like, receptive and open and kind of, like, gauging their interests. Aside from personality, you, I've also heard, uh, heard that you have to be kind of aggressive. That you can't be like shy or scared if you're an entertainment reporter. What do you think about it? Oh, totally. They'll eat you alive or they'll get bored. And the worst thing you can have, like, I'd rather piss somebody off than, um, you know, have someone be bored with me and be like, yeah, yeah, okay, thanks for the story. You know, let's go. And you do have to be aggressive, like, especially covering festivals when they don't want to do press. They want to, like, play their show and then, you know, walk around and drink and you have. It's literally a tent full of journalists, you know, like, talk to me, talk to me. And you have the publicists and the managers or, you know, whoever hanging around and, like, getting their attention and then keeping it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really tough. So you have to kind of, you know, be like, hey, like, what do you think about this or that? Or, uh, you know, just do what you can. It's an interesting sort of hunt. Do you ask provocative questions <clears throat> as a way in to, to interviewing somebody? Not really. You never know like what mood they're going to be in and the last thing I want to do is insult them and be like, well, I'm not talking to you at all anymore. I kind of ask something, you know, open-ended with, you know, an immediate follow-up. That way they have to be like, oh, well, you know, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then it gets their mind going and they're like, all right, I'll talk to you rather than like, you know, how are you enjoying this festival? You don't want it mm -hmm. to be like PR for them. You want to talk to them as people, which I think they appreciate. And, and you mentioned they're walking around drinking. So oh, like, yeah. you're, you're talking, are you really like for the most part, especially after shows, most of the time you're talking to inebriated people? Yeah, it's a pretty steady flow of alcohol throughout. And it's fun, you know, sometimes during interviews, you know, especially at a venue, they'll be like, oh, well, you know, they get a certain amount of beer or whatever. Like, oh, you want a beer? Like, here, let's take a shot. And it's weird if you don't take it because then they're like, oh, you know, they feel uncomfortable. They're like, well, is she trying to stay sober so she can write something bad about me? Should I be behaving? <laughs> yeah. And they become self-aware. But usually it's kind of just like like a social lubricant. The almost famous type of thing. Like, God, like yeah. that movie, like... William, not Penny. I'm so... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Well, yeah, of course, of course, of course. Yeah. Yeah, I've been called the enemy a couple times. <laughs> By what bands? Can you name no. them? No. <laughs> I don't want to ruin my I want to prove them right. You're obviously not writing at the local level. How do you keep up with bands, with celebrities, with movies, with mobile apps, everything that you're writing on? Hustle. No, um, it sounds silly, but lots of Twitter. Okay. And then um, I'm reading probably all day long, whether it's on Twitter, you know, just like doing, it's called a news sweep, you know, just seeing what major outlets like. New York Times, New Yorker, um, what are they putting out? Like, what are people talking about? And then gauging, like, culturally, like, when you go to a bar, like, what shows are people talking about? What movies do people want to see? Like, what big bands are, you know, we hearing? And because sometimes you do writing assignments, like, uh, we, I've read uh, pieces that you've written about shows, popular shows and current cultural events like Mad Men and Sex and the City and things like that. How do you, how do you, if it's not like something like um, an event that's, ha I mean, if it is, a if it's a cultural event, how do you decide what your angle is going to be? Like, because everyone's talking about these types of shows. How do you find what your unique angle is going to be to where you deliver something that people aren't really thinking about? I just watch it and then I'll discuss it with like an editor or a friend, like, 
the other day, um, I had an essay come out about um, social taboos in Magic Mike. And everyone's like, what the hell this movie is about, you know, strippers. Which is why I saw it originally, I won't lie, you know, the muscles and the dancing. Yeah, I'll be there at midnight. That's but, you, yeah, <laughs> but you know, watching it, I was really surprised at the level of like, not even physical exposure, but just like vulnerability that each like of the male characters projected in terms of ideas of failure. And before I had thought like, okay, these guys are taking a road trip because, you know, they're fuckboys and don't want to grow up. It's like a whole new like version of Peter Pan. But as the movie progressed, it's like, oh, wow, you know, their relationships ended or this one is a struggling actor. This like life isn't working out the way that they planned. And it's a very real fear that I think men and, you know, everyone really has, but presented in such a way that these men are, you know, dancing half naked. And you, you think about like their physical bodies and it's like, all right, how much is like failure and this idea of perfection and like masculinity and um, physicality affect mm -hmm. you know men in general and we, that's something we don't talk about except rather than like the dad bod you mm -hmm. know well you mentioned the term fuck boy yeah what does that mean you you mentioned that so quickly in passing and i keep seeing that <laughs> in social media what is that i don't even know how do you, how do you define that i hope i'm not phenomenon. that and you won't believe it there is actually a national fuck boy day I saw on Facebook, it's September 19th, and it's to celebrate these kind of Peter Pan boys that are in a state of like stunted adolescence, you know, mid to late 20s that haven't really grown up, you know, don't want to be in relationships or, you know, serious ones, haven't really matured and are just enjoying life, which is kind of sad. Earlier this year, in February, there was a really good article in New York Magazine about why women are freezing their eggs, like so many of them, and this doctor, in New York, um, he's a fertility specialist, told the writer, she's a woman, it's like, you know, I keep seeing more and more women in their 30s who are, you know, smart, intelligent, you know, fully independent and beautiful, freezing their eggs because they don't have serious boyfriends. He's like, and he said that he's noticed that men of this generation just haven't grown up. Can you relate to that, literally? Can you, have you heard of this fuckboy term? I haven't heard of it before. <laughs> what about the definition of it? I think, I don't, I don't know about the definition, but I think it's true. <laughs> I mean, I think uh, most of the women right now are focused on their careers, are independent, so I think it is happening. Oh, so you're kind of seeing it from both angles for, there. Yeah. From both from sides. From both sides. Hmm. But I think it's kind of for that reason, that they are keeping themselves busy because the guys are not growing up, I don't know. Totally, and I think that, yeah, because as we strive to be more, you know, gender equal and stuff, it's kind of conditioned men to be like, well, you know, I don't need to impress her, or I don't have to be chivalrous because she can take care of herself. And I think that in terms of like relationships, it's not so much about equality as it is balance, like the men being men and the women being women sort of thing. And I think the terms get confused very, very easily. Hmm, and that, that works really well because we, we started with writing about uh, music and journalism, then we talked about writing about pop culture, but another thing that you do write about, uh, one of your focuses is uh, relationships and sex and that kind of thing. How do you uh, decide what kind of to focus on concerning that? And before you words? answer that, okay. there's a mixture there. Because uh, you have the English background, mm -hmm. and I see that you relate some of your stories also to the literature. Yes. So that's kind of an angle of pop culture, what's going on on the big screen, what's going on on 
online on other social media and then what happened many years ago with those famous authors so how did you connect right. all that my mind just works really <laughs> strangely it's always like you know tying different pieces together like how will this work but um i'm really interested in behavior and i think that's something that literature you know really kind of um you know amplifies because you get to know different characters and you get to gauge motivations, which is what I do in journalism. You know, I get a subject and I'm like, all right, what is making them tick? And when it comes to relationships, um, like a story I did on like Tinder profiles being verified, like what is the motivating factor here? Like why is it so seductive to maybe pursue a celebrity or date someone that we can't have? Like what is going on in our brain that's driving that? You know, cause it's not like we're all crazy or it's all, you know, a pipe dream. It's like, no, our brain wants us to achieve a certain goal and it'll release different chemicals that'll help us focus and you know be kind of ballsy to, enough to pursue it and that's kind of like what they've said about uh serotonin levels and what you get yeah. kicked in every time you get a like or you get like a whatever right is it right or left swipe it would be right no swipe <laughs> the fact that i know this day, uh like, just real is it, like do we want or not want <laughs> you had to ask that for the story right yeah okay. and i was like you just do it well that's good me. that you that's good that you don't know it's sad that i kind of knew i might say something about me but anyways it just makes me so sad i'm like it's the death of love stories like <laughs> Because it's all based on physical attractiveness and no, convenience. The, the the amount of miles that are between you and that person, right, is part of Tinder. Yeah, totally. It, yeah, it's all, you know, local. But then, like, I, who doesn't love a story of, like, serendipity? Like, you know, I met him at a bar or, you know, he was in class or we barely missed each other sort of thing. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, we were both bored one night, like, swiping and we yeah. matched and then we chatted and we met at a bar and hooked up. Right. Like, that's not a story. You can order your groceries on a mobile app. I don't want to get my you can order. You can order your Taco Bell. Yeah, I get Chipotle and like I, twice a week on my app. I, <laughs> I have to wait I, in line. I thought about that, I thought about that in, in kind of a relationship to, like, my mom, mm -hmm. you know? Or, or moms. Yeah. People of our generation, our parents. Can you imagine our parents meeting our fathers, our mothers meeting our fathers, on the kind of social media And that's the thing, thing. Like, I'm the product of love at first sight. Like, I don't think it's in my marrow for me to like, do anything so simple. It's just kind of like, oh yeah, like that was cute. Like, oh, I guess. So you see in something like that, to get back to the original question, you see in something like that, a, a critical occasion to write a piece about it. Yeah. like To really investigate it. Yeah, like, why are we doing this? Right. You know, like, have you read Gary Steingart's Super Sad True Love Story? I have not. Oh, you must. It talks about something similar. It's an app and in the book, um, at bars, people don't even look up from their phones, like not like they do much these days. No. But you look and this kind of like hologram thing comes out and it gives you, it's there's abbreviation, it has a full name, but the abbreviations spell out like your fuckability. So it gives you like your fuckability rating and like say you stand next to a, a person who's like closely matches, it starts like dinging and it's like, okay, cool, you know, but what's also interesting is writers have been exploring this topic for years, um, in the 1920s, Evgeny Zemiadin, whose book We Inspired um, Animal Farm, discussed something kind of like that with this like communist society where the people don't even have names, they're just numbers. And what you do is you take like a library ticket to a clerk and it's like, yeah, I want to have sex with this person. And they arrange, you know, a meeting. You know, so this is happening, or people were thinking about this more than a hundred years ago, and now we have the technology to facilitate it, which is crazy. 
In that way, it's kind of uh, like eugenics. And, yeah. Uh, kind of Gattaca. Totally. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. And then you have to wonder, like, these um, apps are so popular, but we're not really seeing a rise in marriages. You know, people are remaining single because now there's such, like, inflation for dating. People don't really need to put work into it, you know. There was another good article that talked about, like, flexing a boyfriend muscles, like, guys will seriously date a girl, you know, for one to four dates and then things start getting serious and then it's like, eh, I'm out, like I, I can date another girl that I can impress and not have to really, you know, devote that much um, energy to. So in that way they might get addicted to that first little, like, let me impress you, impress you, impress yeah. you, boom, and then be done and then move on and do the same thing. Totally. Know? It's the high of the honeymoon and then once you've been out of a relationship for so long, you don't know how to be in one anymore. You don't think uh, this is just going back to the old days, but in a different format? Like uh, the last couple of decades, you were kind of finding your significant other on your own. Mm -hmm. But back then, it was arranged marriages. Totally. And this is kind of like doing again arranged marriages, but using social media, uh, compatible profiles and stuff like that. What do you think of that? Absolutely. That's a really good point. I hadn't considered it's like giving you the power to arrange your own marriage. and. It, in the end, you know, it's still like a business transaction where it's like, all right, this is what I have to offer, this is what I'm looking for, you know, take it or leave it. Whereas before, it was like the parents and the in-laws making the arrangements. And as a writer, writing about these things, like, do you feel like uh, when you start an article like that, that you have some kind of moral or didactic obligation to educate or, or to, to reveal certain things about these things to people? Totally, because I think, you know, I mean, my initial thought when I saw like a Tinder verified profile, like, oh, maybe I could date someone. So, like, what would happen if like I got it and I saw Zac Efron? You know, it's exciting, but then it's kind of like, well, what are the larger implications of you know this behavior? Like, what's gonna happen to these celebrities? You know, are they gonna be wary or embarrassed that you know, like, hey, I have all this money and fame, but I'm single, so I'm gonna kind of like troll you know, for dates or are they just interested in hooking up or gaining more attention and like how valid is it going to be in the long run or like say you do get a date with a celebrity or something and it's not bad, you know, it's just mediocre, you know, you get rejected, like how much more will that set you back when it comes to developing a relationship? And then, uh, to me, pop culture is like bringing everything that's going on in Hollywood, the big screen and everywhere and how people are kind of applying it to their everyday life and lifestyle. That's what I, how I see it. What do you think, coming back to El Paso, since we're bringing what's going on here to the world, what do you think, uh, what's a trend here, what's going on, what do you think the big screen is bringing to the city? What, what is it that you see the most on fashion or whatever, what is it that you think that's going on here? I think right now, just in terms of El Paso, people really want to get out of this like old west kind of persona that's been developed for so long. Like you go out of town and you hear El Paso and you're like, oh yeah, you're slinging guns, or, you know, like Cormac McCarthy, which is great, but you know, it isn't like, you know, that show The Bridge where I don't think that they depict El Paso realistically at all. No, that was, <laughs> it was, it was definitely a cartoonish Yeah, you know, caricature. with a cowboy hat wearing sheriff. <laughs> No, <laughs> we have cars, like we don't all wear hats and <laughs> the accents are totally different. Paved streets. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. But in terms of like broader culture, what I've noticed a lot is how I'm really happy, like how popular Uber is becoming. Okay. You know, I started using it in DC like two years ago and it just like recently came to El Paso and people are flipping out like 
guess what? There's a service where we don't have to drink and drive. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> thank you. Like things are catching on, which is good. And then going back to like the music scene, we're getting kind of like not bigger bands, but I think bands that, you know, haven't traditionally done well in El Paso that are selling out places like, you know, um, Terminal 5 or like 930 Club in um, DC and New York. So it's good, you know, it means that people are being exposed and they're liking what they're hearing. That isn't what they're, you know, brought up listening to. Do you, and then kind of in relation to that, do you think that, that being a writer and somebody that wants to produce something and, and being kind of isolated in West Texas, because I always thought it does something kind of strange to the art that comes out of here because we are so isolated and we have to fight really hard to make whatever we're doing or we want to produce uh, pervasive or known or heard, do you think that that does something, do you think there's a uniqueness to the stuff that comes out of here? Oh, absolutely. I think that, you know, in reading other writers from the area, there's a very kind of like, no bullshit approach to things. And even as I've traveled around, you know, meeting different writers or interviewing different sources, it's just kind of a different perspective where I guess maybe it's not as pretentious or, you know, it's more concerned with like the work that's being put across and even you know, the language is, I guess, like a little bit more dry or concise in many cases, which I think is pretty cool. You get that like regional flair. Absolutely. Uh, you think about it like, like uh, even movies that are filmed here. Yeah. Like the two, like I, the two big ones uh, in the past have been There Will Be Blood and No Country for Old Men filmed in this area. You're talking about a dry kind of very kind of uh, mm-hmm. austere yeah. vibe to it. And then it's just so separated, like from the the rest of Texas. And you have like Mexico right there. It has this sort of like wild west, like romance, or just kind of intrigue. Like, ooh, like who is that? Like, where are they coming from? Like, what are their experiences, and how are they shaping what's being put out there? And why El Paso? Why do you decide? I know you're from here. Your family and friends are here. But why, if you had had the opportunity to be Washington, New York, everywhere else, why El Paso? Um, right around the time I was graduating from Georgetown, my mentor from UTEP called me and asked if I wanted to help co-author a book with him. I studied in London Shakespeare with him every summer of undergrad and he's like, well, tell me about this book. And it's going to be centered on Shakespeare, post-traumatic stress disorder and mental illness and vets from Iraq and Afghanistan. And I asked him, I was like, did you just miss working with me and like combine all my favorite things? Um, no, he didn't. but. The Shakespeare Center of Los Angeles has a really interesting art rehabilitation program for vets with PTSD and other forms of mental illness. So they read the plays, they go through them, study them, and stage their own productions. And as they're doing so, what they found is that it's really helping them with um, coping with their PTSD and opening up, which I think is fascinating. I love the intersection of art and science, especially psychology. Um, My thesis in grad school was on manic depression, like bipolar disorder, creativity, and musicians. So it was like, kind of like a step up for (laughs) for me. Well, Erin, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. And uh, what's going on, what's next for you? Uh, What projects are you working on? What are you looking at uh, for the future? Oh God, I wish I knew. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Is that the life of a writer? Is that the life of, of a writer? writing for all these different publications, is it waiting for the next thing? Totally, it usually, yeah, it really is. Like, um, I'm doing a lot of stuff for Salon, which I love, you know, it's a lot of like cultural criticism and stuff, but I'm gonna start writing for a new live music platform that should be launching any day now. So what they're gonna be doing is sending me 
to festivals and you know I have the option to go on tour with different bands if I like um, to kind of travel and get their stories so I'm looking forward to that. What advice would you give to an aspiring student or writer? Don't give up. Want to follow your steps. <laughs> it's really, it's a lot more rejection than it is acceptance. And what you have to do is be persistent. Like, figure out an editor's email and memorize it. You know, it might take a while. It usually does to get them to read it or even acknowledge you. But once you know they respond to an email, they're going to remember your name and keep pitching, keep going. You know, read as much, if not twice as like much as you write, because that's what makes a good writer. I agree. I always tell, I always tell my students that. You have to read. You have to consume in order to produce. Mm -hmm. And any any anytime I would meet a writer that was writing in a creative writing program, and you would ask them, "What are you reading now?" If they didn't have a good answer for that, I didn't believe in them. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Because you have to know, you know, what precedents have been set. You have to like see what you like, what you dislike, what you think is bullshit, and what you can improve upon. Find the knowledge generating your content. <laughs> right, exactly. exactly. Stand on the shoulders of giants, right? That's yes. the thing. Uh, great. Uh, well, Aaron, thank you so much for being here. Thank and uh, we'll be looking forward to reading uh, publications that uh, you're, you're writing for and works that you're putting out in the future. Oh, thank you very much. Where can people follow you? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Miss underscore Coolahan or you know, just, I don't know, Google maybe. <laughs> okay. Great. Thank, thank you so you. much. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Three, two, one. Okay, you said you helped co-found the City Magazine. Yes. I don't think we had that kind of uh, magazine or journalism before. It was more like magazines that were selling publicity or uh, photos of events, but not that kind of magazine. And I know you have like also supplements and home interiors or weddings or something like that. What can you tell about that? Yeah, it was very niche before the city came about. Um, it's actually fun, kind of funny how it, I got involved with it. One of my best friends from college, his mom, um, Shelly Moselle, who's the editor-in-chief, was starting the magazine. She kind of had an idea for it. And he told her, like, hey, you know, my friend Erin, she's this writer, you know, I think you might like her, like, you guys should get in touch. And he told me the same. And both of us were kind of like, oh, I don't know, you know, this is kind of weird um, and stuff. And we met instantly hit it off and so I went in, helped him start. I was um, there from like the ground up. I was there as like serving as senior editor and it was three of us working in an office. It was Shelly, our publisher, and myself and Shelly and I were sharing a desk, like bumping butts like all the time, trying to get this, you know, magazine put together and I didn't realize what an extreme amount of work it was like in terms of like advertising dollars like getting photo shoots arranged, you know, getting stories and you know, I was writing stories, I was editing stories and managing, you know, a team of writers while organizing parties <laughs> at the same time, but that really is what turned me on to journalism, you know, learning not only, yeah, okay, I like writing, it's cool seeing a byline, but that journalism is a very real business and you have to be aware of, you know, circulation, you know, how many issues are being published, where are they being distributed, and then if you have a web presence, you know, what are the metrics, like how do we promote this? you think the El Paso audience has been receptive to this new uh, type of magazine here? Oh, absolutely. I remember before when we were first starting out, people didn't really know what it was, and you know, it, it, with El Paso you kind of have to ease them into things, you have to introduce them, they're not very trusting in that regard, but um, once I left to DC and you know, coming back for launch parties, you know, they were huge. It's just like, oh my god, like people actually care. Like people are reading it and now the book is 
you know, so thick and it's not all advertising, you know, it's stories and it's different content and different perspectives, which is, you know, everything I could imagine for it. And do you think they're staying loyal to it? Yeah. Yes. No, absolutely. I'm so proud of like all the work they're doing and every time I go to a launch party or, you know, read it, I'm like, oh my god, like, look at him go, I look the baby fly. <laughs> is it baby fly? Yeah. Like a baby duck. Like a lar <laughs> like a larva? Yeah, no. What's a baby fly? No, look fly? at like the baby like fly away. Like, oh, okay, I think you meant like a baby fly. No, like, like a I fly would like, launch, fly. you know, okay, okay. into the universe. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's a lot going. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask about a uh, like, metamorphosis in Kafka. Now? Yeah, yeah. Let's, you know, let's move on to uh, Kafka metamorphosis. Uh, Jeff Gold, Jeff Goldblum, <laughs> the fly. Um, I wanted to ask something about multimedia interviews because it's a big difference between a print interview and and what comes out as opposed to something like we're doing with like a, mm -hmm. a podcast or a video interview. Do you approach them differently or do you, uh, how, are, how is that conducted differently? Usually just because I'm kind of stubborn um, and spoiled, I like writing, like I like shaping the story and you know, forming it with my words. Um, Video is I really kind of shy away from just because I'm so awkward with the equipment. Like I'm not good at getting angles. Like if there's a producer or someone there, you know that's fine, but I don't like seeing myself on camera. <laughs> and you know, you get weird mannerisms and I like the interviews to be more of like a conversation, you know, like let's grab a drink at a bar, you know, and just kind of talk and then later, you know, I'll kind of sit down and digest it and try to write it in such a way as I was recounting it to my friends. And that makes it more candid because they don't feel like there's something in their face. Or yeah, and they're not worried about how they look. You know, with right. musicians, they're kind of like, oh, you know, I have to be on stage pretty soon. You know, there's all these things going through their mind. You know, and creative types are usually so kind of socially awkward in general. Like, you don't want to kind of amplify that. Right, right, right. So I wanted to ask you about some of your uh, specific interviews that you've had with musicians, I being a musician. And you've inter interviewed some people that I really respect and admire, would love to get to talk to. So uh, I'd like to ask you about uh, the singer from The National because uh, Matt, uh, we were having a debate about how to say his name, Berninger or Berenger. But either way, Matt from The National, what was it like interviewing him? Like, uh, how did, what was that like? It was one of the best and most like surreal interviews I've ever done. It was in December of 2013, a top the rooftop of the W Hotel at a really cool party. All these different bands were playing to only like 300 people. It was like, it was the National, Silverstone Pickups, like Airborne Toxic Event, uh, Miss Mister, AWOL Nation, and there was cast of like Laguna Beach and other reality shows running around and then, you know, me. And they're like, all right kid, you gotta go talk to the National who I love. So Matt and I are sitting in this little cabana and Joan Jett gets on stage and he and I kind of look at each other like, is that Joan Jett? We're like, yeah, we're like, this is so weird. So it's kind of cool having a comrade in this very like foreign situation. And they had just been nominated for a Grammy, which was, you know, huge for them. So we're sitting down and we're talking and I'm like, Matt, what's it like to be nominated for a Grammy? You know, the album was great, but how does it feel now to get this sort of recognition? He tells me, you know, it doesn't really mean anything to me. And I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, you know, it doesn't. And I'm like, dude, I really like you. Like, I don't want to make you look like an asshole. Can you tell me perhaps something that does mean something to you? Like what like validates this for you or, you know, makes it worth your time? So then he proceeded to tell me this really beautiful story about he was walking down the streets of New York 
and a woman recognized him and stopped him to show him the inside of her wedding ring and inscribed were some of his lyrics. And yeah. so he was like, it was like, uh, what did he say? He was like, it was a kick in the gut. He was like, that's the kind of shit that means something to me. And it was just such a beautiful story. I was like, oh my God. So I included it in the piece that I wrote for Al and it's always been my hope that that woman read it and was ever like able to realize like, oh wow, like something I said or did meant as much to me as like what he does. Yeah. So that was kind of cool. Another really good one, I know you're a Lucero fan. Yes. Was Ben Nichols, who was just, you know, absolutely great. We talked a lot about, you know, Clement McCarthy and stuff, and they were wrapping up this like massive tour. It was almost like two years long, and I imagine, you know, you know what it's like coming back from tour and kind of being, you know, jolted back into reality or a state of like stagnation. I asked him like, so what are you gonna do now that you're gonna have like free time and be in one place, you know, for a while? And he got completely serious and like leaned in and looked at me and said, well, darling, I'm looking forward to spending time with the girl I've been writing songs about on the road. And I was just oh. like, oh my God, <laughs> like completely dead. I was like, that's the sweetest thing anyone has ever said. And I don't wanna like get girly or like, oh. Like during an interview, but that was just so touching. Yeah, Ben Nichols should own the copyright to the word darling. I, I just, like he's reinvented <laughs> it for all of us. Oh my god, I know. I, I actually felt myself like physically like peel into myself. I'm like, oh, oh, okay, I don't want to take up any more of your time. You go get your girl. <laughs> Very cool. And and would you would you put those at the top? Like, who would you say is like the most interesting interview that you've done? Musician or writer or, or any, regardless, oh or where you were most nervous or you thought it was the most impacted you the most. Um, probably. God, the one that kicked off everything was Atlas Genius. That was in late September of 2012. They were one of the first bands I ever interviewed. Definitely the biggest band. And Keith and I interviewed by phone and. He had told me that, you know, it was going to be their first show in D.C. Like, it was their first time they were playing a show at the 930 Club with Silverstone Pickups, but they were playing a lunchtime show at the Australian Embassy, which is right down the street from Nat Geo. So he invited me. I went and we kind of, like, became friends. We hung out at the show and um, wrote the story, and I was surprised by just how nice, you know, they were. And I thought, oh, you know, I hope everyone is like that. And throughout the course of his career and my career, we've kind of paralleled. Like it was his show I was at in New York the night I met the editor from Rolling Stone, which is how I got my job. And then six months later, I got an assignment to interview him for Rolling Stone because his band was taking off. And since then, we've um, paralleled, like I said. So it's been kind of cool to have a friend who, you know, we're doing this together. Very cool. And the other question I have. Before, like when you would write uh, for a magazine, you didn't have that feedback from the audience. Now you have social media. How have you been interacting with people? What has been like the worst or the best or remarkable of that? <laughs> people are crazy and it's, it's still baffling to me. You know, I got into writing because, you know, I love it and I don't want to be on camera. Like it really doesn't matter to me what I look like. Um, I wrote a story. For Slate one time, it was for a um, like March Madness martini bracket or something. So what they did is they sent me to bars to you know try the famous martinis and I had to rate them. So one night I was at this kind of famous um, 
bar in DC and it was, you know, very like boys club and stuff. And I had to order, you know, like a Vesper martini or something. So I'm sitting there and I'm sitting there by myself alone. I got bored. So I started eavesdropping on the conversations of the men around me and recording the notes on my phone. And um, I could hear there was a group of like three men sitting to the right of me and one was like, no, you talk to her, no, you talk to her. Like, oh, she looks like, you know, like Scarlett Johansson or something. It's weird. So, I can see it. <laughs> thank you. Um, so then I sent my notes to my editor the next day and he, you know, saw what I had written. He's like, this is a story. He's like, do this. All right. So we publish it and then I got a couple emails from a reader who had Google imaged me and emailed me pictures of myself asking, is this you? Is this you? And I'm like, how did you get these? You know, it's really, really weird. So that was kind of, you know, off-putting, but usually, you know, people are pretty nice. Like, like, oh cool, like, I love that band or I like how you put two and two together. Other times you get the trolls that, you know, they don't do anything else rather than, you know, tear people down all day and it's, you take the good with the bad, you're kind of instructed like not to read the comments, which I try not to do. 